Okay, hello everyone, and welcome to our podcast series on Listen to the Experts, Targeted Temperature Management, where we address key questions and current challenges in the field of therapeutic hypothermia and TTM. So my name is Dalton Dietrich. I'm a professor in the Department of Neurological Surgery at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. And I've got two really special guests today to talk about this subject. Dr. Tusi is director of the NeuroICU Fellowship Program and assistant professor in the Department of Neurology and Neurosurgery at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. Dr. Tusi, nice seeing you today. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Thank you for having me. Fantastic, it's great. And Dr. Reiner uh, Linhart. Dr. Linhart is Professor and Vice Chair for Clinical Affairs, uh, Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine, Critical Care. And he is at the University of Louisville. Dr. Linhart, welcome today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Very good. Really appreciate both of you joining today. I know you're very busy, probably coming out of the um, in the ICU or whatever, but uh, we'll just spend a few minutes together talking about best practices and why, why you use um, temperature management in your clinical practice and any current challenges that you're running into. And today's general topic has to do with fever avoidance in uh, clinical practice. We knew for a long time that many, many people, many subjects, many patients in the ICU and after injuries had fevers, uh, reactive hyperthermia, and, uh, you know, over the years, uh, people have been paying much more attention to it and trying to be a little bit more upfront in terms of avoiding it or preventing it. So the first question that I can throw out to both of you is, what do you think about the importance of TTM and fever avoidance in your clinical practice? Dr. Tusi, you want to start us off? Sure, happy to. So this is a big topic in the neurocritical care unit because patients with acute brain injury can have fevers as part of their initial disease process. And there's a lot of thought that this can actually then cause secondary brain injury. And so the majority of what I'm doing in the ICU is trying to prevent ongoing secondary brain injury after a primary injury has happened. And it's a huge part of what we do clinically because we think that it actually is one of the factors that we can try to modulate to improve outcomes in patients whether they've suffered from a cardiac arrest and hypoxic brain injury, whether it's a reactive fever in the context of an acute ischemic stroke or a hemorrhagic stroke. So it's a big part of our practice. Fantastic. Dr. Linhart, any um, additions to that? No, I fully agree. This is a very important topic. We try very hard clinically to get patients' fevers down or don't even have them develop a fever uh, the whole topic of central fever is, is a big topic. Uh, we don't know exactly how it develops. We don't know exactly the pathways. But what we do know is that it's associated with worse outcome. Therefore, we try very hard to get these fevers under control and try to minimize the fever burden in our brain injury patients, both the traumatic as well as the non-traumatic brain injury patients. Yeah, many years ago in, in the laboratory, when I started talking to my clinical colleagues, they started uh, telling me about the incidence of fever. And so some of our early experiments were you would produce uh, a stroke or, or, or spinal cord injury or traumatic brain injury, and you'd actually wait um, a period of time, like 24 hours, and you'd elevate the temperature to 39.5 for about, you know, uh, one hour or something of this nature. 
And we found very quickly that in terms of the rodent studies, uh, that changed the whole pathophysiology of the animal. And that was just one incident of a period of, uh, of uh, a transient hyperthermia. So I was always uh, impressed by the fact that even in the post-injury setting, that had such a major effect on pathophysiological mechanisms. So I think with that in mind, both of you agree that fever can be detrimental to outcome. Yes. Is Absolutely. There, is there a, um, a particular patient population that you feel where fever avoidance is, is most, most important? Definitely neurocritical care patients are the patients to target because as I mentioned before, it's, we have plenty of evidence that there is a strong association with outcomes, both in mortality as well as morbidity with the fever burden of the patient who has brain or has suffered a brain injury. Uh, the same holds true for patients who have suffered a cardiac arrest and um, needed CPR, got ROSC, and uh, now develop a, a fever that, again, I believe is a, is a type of a central fever due to massive pro-inflammatory cytokine release and, uh, and, and thereby uh, producing a, a huge amount of, of, of pathogens um, causing this fever. And therefore, th these are the two patient populations and each time we're talking about the brain, not about any other organ, basically. Um, these are the two patient populations that, that really need to be tightly controlled for, let's say, normothermia, at least. Normothermia, whatever that is, exactly right. Um, Dr. Tusi, I mean, subarachnoid hemorrhage patients, that's what I've got written down. Um, I, I've talked to some people and saying that's a group that really hypothermia can have, have a major effect on outcome. Yeah, it, it's maybe, possibly. We don't know if hypothermia per se or is it temperature control or normothermia. And you said, what is normothermia? I like that you said that because we don't really actually know exactly what ideal normothermia is for these brain injured patients. Um, you know, I, I do want to echo what was already said. When we think about, you know, what is the patient population? The first one that comes to mind for all of us is, is cardiac arrest. And I, I just want to come back to that for just a moment because I I, I, I tell all my trainees that, you know, cardiac arrest is a brain problem and not a heart problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I say that just because, you know, right, that the, the brain is just getting this massive anoxic injury, um, you know, pro-inflammatory state, you know, um, you know, apoptosis pathways that can, you know, happen in days and days and even up to a week after the arrest. And so, you know, that is a place where we really have been thinking about temperature management the most. And, um, it's an interesting story that has evolved over the last couple of decades, but and and one that that's not, I don't think the door is closed on yet. But that's that's really where most of our focus is in terms of temperature management right now. Um, and then in terms of other disease states, you know, I think traumatic brain injury is another big one. Um, and so, you know, we've we've moved away from from cooling patients to to moderate or you know or deep hypothermia levels after Eurotherm came out. But there's still definitely a role for it in cases of, you know, refractory elevated ICPs and definitely a primary role in temperature uh, uh, fever prevention, so to speak, not necessarily cooling, but uh, fever prevention. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that was my next uh, question it has to do with um, prophylactic fever avoidance and uh, what's the best way to do that. And again, which patient population 
uh, are you most sensitive to that if, if there is a patient population where you really want to make sure that that temperature doesn't start rising and then you have to actually react to that uh, increase in temperature? Right, right. So, you know, just more more practically, uh, when when patients are in the ICU, um, you know, we consider temperature just as we all do as one of the core vitals. So it's being monitored continuously, you know, every, you know, every hour, every couple of hours by our nurses. And, you know, if we start to see for sure if it starts to get, you know, um, in the in the febrile range and people have different definitions, but above 38.3, above 38.5, um, we will be very active in terms in bringing that down, um, you know, in a in a graduated approach. Um, you know, we use, um, you know, antipyretics, Tylenol, so on and so forth, cooling blankets. Um, and, you know, if there's any shivering a part of that medications to try to you know control the internal temperature that way and then move very quickly to um you know closed loop devices such as you know, you know cooling blankets or inter, inter um uh venous catheters to help bring down the temperature um and and those patients were you know all, all patients really in the icu were really actively you know we never look at a fever and say Oh, that's that's fine. Um, you know, we're we're all in all the patients who are in the ICU, we're we're being very aggressive in that. Um, and then of course there's the cardiac arrest patients where our threshold to actually get ahead of it is much lower. So we, you know, in in a select group of patients, we may model after the the results of the TTM two trial will actually be more aggressive and active temperature control, you know, above 37.6, 37.7 will act, will be, you know, before they even get there, we will intervene to not allow the fever to, to develop at all. Dr. Linhart. It's kind of interesting to see the different patient population in the critical care unit. Uh, you may see a patient who is septic getting a high fever. Now, when the patient's getting a true fever, which is a controlled hyperthermia, then, uh, the fever will have a ceiling effect. And only if the ceiling, if, if the fever is so high that we have secondary problems such as uh, tachyarrhythmia, for instance, or seizures, we would treat these patients. But these are septic patients, and they are completely different from the patient population that has any sort of brain injury. Uh, going back to, for instance, the subarachnoid hemorrhage patient population, uh, the literature is telling us that 40 to 70% of a subarachnoid hemorrhage patient population develop a fever early on. And um, as I mentioned before, that is clearly associated with worse outcomes. So I fully agree that these patients um, should be prevented to even develop a fever. Therefore, it is important to keep them monitored, ideally continuously monitored if you possibly can, such as using a bladder catheter, for instance, and, and, and then uh, act or react as quickly as possible. So the moment we see a rise in temperature, we should react so that the fever burden doesn't go too high. Now, you mentioned very nicely, normal thermia is, 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 is a very difficult um, uh, def has a difficult definition, or actually no definition. What does normothermia mean? Let's say we take a range, and it's probably not important if we take the range from 36.5 to 37.5 or from mm -hmm. 36.8 to 37.9. The bottom line is to try to do primary prevention, fever prevention in this patient population. Well said. Yeah, we got a big. We got one of the uh, early lectures at the International Hypothermia Meeting on what is normal thermia, 
And uh, it was, I think they they did all these calculations. This person had done the really thing. It was very interesting, but it, it, it came out to about 36.6 or something like that. It was very interesting, lower. And which was which was interesting because our first hypothermia studies, our our, hype, our normal thermic group was actually um, uh, thirty six point five, and was the it was the only rodent study where that was the normal thermia that we induced, and you know we just did that because uh, uh, for some reason I don't even remember why we did thirty thirty six point five, but it worked out pretty well. Uh, so I guess we get now into the uh, area of um, what's the best uh, methods. Uh, that you consider for avoiding a treating fever, and maybe it, it varies from from patient population to patient population, or you know how soon after injury there are. But what are your thoughts on what are the best ways, uh, methodologies to uh, treat a fever or avoid it, Dr. Linhart? Well, there are four different methods that we have available. Oh, let's let's make it easier. There are two different methods mm. that we have available an external cooling method and an internal cooling method. External cooling means that we are cooling the body surface. Now, when we cool the body surface, uh, let me back off for a moment and, and just mention that the body broadly consists of two thermal compartments, the peripheral compartment and the core compartment. And the core compartment includes the brain, the neck, the torso, the abdomen, and parts of the thigh, let's say. Now, what we are interested in is to get core body temperatures down. When we talk about fever reduction, we want to cool the core compartment. When we have an external method to cool, we start cooling the peripheral compartment first, and then that is followed eventually by the core compartment. So in other words, it takes quite some time to uh, get a fever down or bring a temperature down, regardless if, if we want to bring a temperature down to normal thermia or even to hypothermia. So that's the external method. Um, different methods here, we can use water, we can use air, cold air, and so on and so forth. And then there's internal methods. Uh, the classic internal method that we all have worked with is putting a central venous catheter into the patient and have a temperature exchange. Basically, it's a temperature exchange catheter that allows us to pull heat out of the core compartment without even touching the peripheral compartment. So in other words, we have a highly effective method to cool the, the core compartment. But interestingly enough, there are other methods that work as well that are not as invasive. Um, one of them is, for instance, the, the esophageal heat transfer device. Mm -hmm. um, that's a, a modified Dophoff tube that we put into the esophagus, and it works actually really well. Again, cooling the core compartment without touching the peripheral compartment. And that I would, I would consider this an internal cooling method as well. And last but not least, there is a method um, when we use evaporative nasal, intranasal evaporative catheters mm -hmm. that allow us to almost selectively cool the brain um, rather than the whole internal compartment or the whole, the whole core compartment. It's a fascinating approach as well. And um, I have done a study a number of years ago on patients 
with one of these devices and it really worked. It really kept the patients normal thermic. So none of them ever got a uh, hyperthermic episode, a fever episode. These were all brain patients, all uh, ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke patients. So these devices also seem to work to keep core body temperature in a certain range. Thank you, Dr. Tusi. That was an excellent summary of the various ways that we can we can cool. I'm not sure I can add much more to that. That's the devices, and of course, there's the pharmacotherapy, which you know most people listening probably are familiar with. Of course, you know using Tylenol, using Celebrex is something I grab. You know another type of non-steroidal, and then of course the shivering, the management that you can do that can counter your, it can uh, you know be fighting your efforts to cool somebody if they're shivering quite a bit. So using a graduated approach to treat shivering with medications, buspirone, meperidine, uh, magnesium drips, Presidex, opiates if you need to as the last line, um, you know midazolam if you need to. But again, trying to leave those for the last tier because a possible secondary brain injury you can get from some of those infusions. But um, using a mixture of pharmacotherapy along with these cooling strategies that were so uh, nicely outlined can be can get you to your target temperature pretty effectively. Uh, it, are there certain uh, strategies you use for one patient population versus another? Yeah, I think that's a, that's an you know of course everyone has what they what they prefer you know in, in our practice in my practice specifically I have found um, you know intravascular cooling to be particularly helpful and it's not so much in terms of the cooling phase but it's also in the rewarming phase. And the reason for that is that, you know, I can get patients down pretty cold, but there is thought that you can actually cause harm by then raising the temperature too quickly after it's brought down and being able to really tightly control that rewarming phase to, you know, fractions of a degree can be helpful. So that is why I tend to choose intravascular cooling if I can. Now, there might be times where you can't do that. Now, site access, not, you know, somebody has an IVC filter or something that's preventing you from placing, you know, a super long, you know, 38 centimeter catheter in their, in their femoral vein, you know, going for art, you know, a surface cooling can be, can be helpful. That may not always be possible too. If there's a trauma patient, if there's burns, um, you know, you have to be able to have adequate um, surface area that you can actually apply cooling pads on. So there's going to be patient selection factors that are going to influence your decision all the time. But usually I go for the intravascular cooling for the better controlled rewarming and less shivering. Yeah, that controlled rewarming is uh, something that we talk about a lot. I mean, when the TTM1 study came out, Everyone around the table is asking him, can you can you show us exactly, um, you know, why did you rewarm so quickly? You know, right. many people thought that. And also, was there any um, overshoot in terms of the uh, the uh, hype, uh, rapid rewarming? And we could never get we could never get that data from them. So it was always up in the air if uh, many of their cooled patients actually demonstrated a period of uh, mild hypothermia with that overshoot. So uh, every, every stage in this is, is really interesting to think about and, and probably very critical. So how about utilizing inhaled gases and intravenous drugs for controlling elevated temperature? I think I was telling Dr. Uh, Linhart that I read a, a really nice chapter that he did several years ago. And uh, it seems to be a lot of uh, different types of strategies to cool or, or avoid uh, a fever in that regard. Yes, uh, theoretically. Um, when we think about anesthetics, anesthetics, regardless if they are volatile anesthetics or if they are intravenous anesthetics, 
impair thermoregulation. And they do that by increasing the temperature threshold for sweating if core temperature goes up and by reducing the temperature threshold for vasoconstriction as well as for shivering when core body temperature goes down. When we have a patient who has a fever, what happens is that the hypothalamus sets the set point up. It elevates the set point, or you may call it balance point if you want. And what happens regardless of if a patient is under anesthesia or not, the set point stays elevated as long as we have pyrogens in the organism. Now, however, the difference now between an anesthetized and a non-anesthetized patient is that the anesthetized patient does not react the same way as the non-anesthetized patient. The non-anesthetized patient reacts with vasoconstriction and shivering to keep core body temperature right at the set point where the hypothalamus has set it. Whereas the anesthetized patient does not have the ability to use these autonomic responses of vasoconstriction and shivering. In other words, if we have a patient who is febrile that we anesthetize and that whereas we are impairing thermoregulation, this patient will bring the core body temperature down dose dependently. So volatile anesthetics as well as intravenous anesthetics can reduce core body temperature and they can reduce fever as well, but only to the extent as to as long as we give them. The moment we stop these medications, the autonomic responses of the thermoregulatory system will bounce back to normal physiologic responses and the patient will immediately start to shiver. So for instance, give you an example. A patient who is a febrile um, coming to the operating room, let's say a patient has 39 degrees Celsius and the patient is now anesthetized and we will not actively warm the patient. This patient over time will gradually have a reduction in his core body temperature and may become a febrile throughout the procedure. Now we are at the end of a surgical procedure. We stop general anesthesia. All these medications, the volatile anesthetics and the intravenous anesthetics will go away. The patient wakes up, the patient goes to recovery room and almost immediately the patient wants to bounce back his core body temperature to the elevated set point that was not changed throughout general anesthesia. So out of a sudden, we get a rebound hypothermia, and that may go hand in hand with vigorous shivering sometimes. So yes, these anesthetics would work to suppress fever to a certain extent, those dependently, but only as long as they are given. Wow, Dr. Tusi. I, I don't have anything to, to add to that. That was, that was thank you, Dr. Lethard. Yeah, those set points, that's kind of interesting to think about. So that really, you know, when you really think about the continuum of care, uh, you're in surgery and then you go to the ICU, 
I mean, you're always, um, thank heavens for all these monitor, mo uh, monitoring strategies you can use. And uh, I guess that nurses can look at those and treating physicians can look at those all the time. But it really is, um, uh, now that we've really, uh, well, it's just like blood pressure and all the types of physiological uh, variables, right? You always have to try to uh, pay attention to those during the course of uh, recovery. So true. <laughs> oh yeah, very much so. Yeah, it looks like it's a lot of labor. I mean, it's just labor intensive in terms of, uh, you know, all the new tools and uh, technologies that we have now temperature on top of that. Okay, so I think what we've we learned today is um, boarding temperature is important. <clears throat> Strategies to be proactive to make sure a, a, a patient doesn't have a fever. If you have a fever, there's different ways that you can treat it. There's a lot of different ways, and it may vary between uh, what patient population you're looking at or injury severity. Uh, methods of, of cooling are, are varied. So let's just finish with hypothermia trials. Do you have any favorite ones that you really thought were really done well? Or what trial do you think is going on now that you're really excited about? Uh, Dr. Tusi, what do you think? I'm, I'm, I'm leaning towards you because, you know, I've been reading about the ice cap study, and I know you're involved with that, and which just seems uh, really uh, very important and timely. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm one of the, the I'm the site PI um, for that study. Of course, it's a it's a big NIH uh, sponsored study, and that study is looking at the duration of cooling. Um, it's you know, you know establishing that cooling is important for reducing secondary brain injury in cardiac arrest patients, and really trying to find what the optimal duration is. Um, whether there are benefits um, for you know super short periods of cooling or more, more prolonged periods of cooling. I think the great thing about the ice cap study is that it is it will address one of the shortcomings, potential shortcomings in prior studies in cardiac arrest cooling, and that patients have to be cold very fast within four hours of ROSC uh, before even becoming eligible. That is part of the inclusion criteria. And one of the criticisms of prior studies is the time that it would take for patients to have, you know, have their cardiac arrest, get ROSC, and then actually get to gold temperature. And that a lot of the early brain injury and maybe you know, the, the benefits from cooling are hyper early, um, you know, right after you get reperfusion to the brain. And so I think this is a, this is still a question that remains to be answered, but the ice cap study will, will hopefully address, you know, the, in terms of other prior studies that have been done, you know, very well, we can't have a conversation about, you know, targeted temperature management without talking about the TTM2 trial. It can't be ignored. I think there is not a single person who would say that that study was you know, it would, everyone would agree that this was a beautifully done study. It was a very well done study, large study, very well done, and 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 probably one of the one of the best studies that have been done in critical care medicine, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It really is. It's hard to do studies in critical care like this of this magnitude. Um, so I think it answers a very important question, but it answers an important question for a very specific patient population. And so the majority of these patients are they're all out of hospital large percentages of bystander CPR. These are not patients that we see you know, in the United States who you know, are not getting bystander CPR, who have prolonged durations of you know, low flow time. And so it's a little bit different than our population that we're seeing in the United States. But it, again, it was a really great study and it was a non-inferiority study, which I think is important to say. So it's not saying that, that normothermia is actually better than hypothermia. It's saying that these two modalities when done properly, when actually done correctly, and when fever is prevented, 
these patients did did the same. And I think that's a really important point to take away there that we're not showing that one is superior to the other. And I think another great takeaway from that study, I think it's, you know, again, here's another large study that's showing that cooling people with moderate hypothermia, the adverse effects or not more, right? So yeah, another study that's showing that it is safe to do cooling for patients who've had anoxic brain injury after cardiac arrest. But those are the takeaways that I take. I think there's still there's still a lot to learn. I hear through the grapevine that there's going to be a TTM3 study um, happening. Plot is only going to thicken even more, and maybe we'll all come back together to talk about your prevention once the TTM3 study comes out in a few years. <laughs> we certainly will. I'm sure we'll have a nice time talking about that. Uh, Dr. Linhart, things to add? First of all, I, w- I would like to congratulate Dr. Tusi about this IceCap study. This is an amazing study. I read the protocol and I was stunned. Uh, this is a Bayesian adaptive design study. Very, very complex. Uh, you always have to have really good statisticians to... But just to be clear, it's not my study. I'm just the site guy <laughs> for the study, just to be very... <laughs> uh, I think it's fascinating and it's a great study because we really may learn a lot more about how long do we actually have to do cool the cooling phase. And this is a completely unanswered question. So congratulations, and I'm looking forward to the results. Now, what I'd like to add uh, regarding normal thermal studies, such as TTM2 study versus uh, 33 degree study, uh, 33 degree groups is that there is one problem that we see over and over again when we cool patients down to 32 or 33 degrees, and that is arrhythmia. And arrhythmic events, and studies have shown that over and over again, are more. They can even be uh, not that benign sometimes to an extent where patients have to be rewarmed so that we are getting out of arrhythmia. Not every patient is like this, but there are some patients who who do that. So I just wanted to mention that. Another important question is, does fever prevention actually improve outcome? And we we don't really know, do we? There is the Interpreet study that according to clinicaltrials.gov has been completed recently. So I'm looking forward to whatever the results will be going equipoise, right? but we really want to see if preventing fever compared to standard treatments in a critical care, in neurocritical care patients, actually improves functional outcome, improves mortality. And I do get it. The, the, there was only a secondary endpoint in the interpret study. The primary endpoint is fever burden a reduction, which will, I am sure, be accomplished. But what really matters in clinical practice at the end of the day is clinical outcome. So mortality on the one hand, but even more importantly, in my opinion, functional outcome. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's something there's something that gets lost when you take the re- amazing, robust results of the preclinical studies, right? And we apply them to the clinic, right? Pre-clin- in the preclinical studies, every experiment, there is no better neuroprotectant, right? <laughs> and then- any, there's nothing else. It, just, it, it, yeah. it, it blows your mind, you know, and of course, this is Dr. Dr. Idris, this is, this is your life's work, you know, so it's incredible. And then when we translate it, you know, something 
something is off. And, you know, and I think everyone, you know, when we saw the results of the TTM2 study, we see that, and then we compare that with the results of, you know, the original, you know, cardiac arrest therapeutic hypothermia trials in 2002. And there's just this huge difference and so something has happened. Maybe we're just, maybe we're paying attention more. We're paying attention to more variables in these critically ill patients. And these patients are just, are so heterogeneous and we are not able to actually say like, this is it, right? In a, in a preclinical you know, study, you can, you can control everything. And our patients, we can't, we can't control it. We can't, we can't give every single patient the same exact degree or burden of anoxic injury. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's the precision care part of it, that different degrees of brain injury may or may not respond differently to different degrees and different durations of temperature. And there's so many ifs that I just said, and that's, then you're not surprised that then if you take a patient population of 2000 people, you know, you're going to, it's going to be a wash. You're not going to, you're not going to be able to detect a, a statistically significant difference between these groups. No answers there, just more questions. <laughs> yeah, a lot of questions. And that's why we keep having these hypothermia meetings and we'll, we'll meet together in Los Angeles um, later on. But um, I think, I think what I'm excited about is um, yes. I mean, we, we discussed the TTM2 trial uh, quite a lot. And, you know, seven major weaknesses were brought out at discussion and things of this nature, but, you ex but you're exactly right. Well done study. One of the best I've ever seen. But now the data is coming out. I mean, I, my, I gave a talk on basically, well, what next? And basically my talk had to do with patient heterogeneity, looking at, let's say, cardiac arrest or neonatal epoxic encephalopathy. And what they're finding now is that you have mild, you have moderate, and you have severe patients in all of these groups. And the very, very mild, basically, if you maintain normal thermia, they're great. I mean, they do pretty well, right? If you do moderate, you've got a pretty heterogeneous population. We just still, we can't dissect that population out yet, but, but it, it appears to me, and I, this is what I I told anyone that particular population, if you had some biomarker to, to put that patient populate that patient in that population, you would want to cool to 34, I think, and, and maybe later on bring the temperature back up. But and then you have the severe, and it's clear that 33 or you know may not be enough to, to protect against that patient population. So I, I'm really pushing for now bedside biomarkers that we can actually be able to characterize and use, as you said, precision medicine a little bit better uh, to gauge exactly what level and duration of hypothermia. So that's where I am right now with my discussions. And I just think this is a very interesting area. And getting back to the ice cap, my uh, graduate student just finished uh, machine learning and big data. And she's in San Francisco now working with the group on track TBI. So I really like the ice cap that's using this machine learning multimodality type of approaches to actually put all this together to, to, to get an answer to how you best treat the patient. I don't know if anybody um, believes in that right now, but I think it's the future, right? And I'm, I'm looking forward yeah. to it. And, and, you know, they're doing, you know, the precise cap is the sub-study of the ice cap study that is looking at that exactly. They're using, you know, imaging data, EEG data, bedside physiologic data, to try to find, you know, almost like a signature, right, of, of how how of how much brain injury that you have, and maybe we can see a signal of who might respond better. You mentioned like the very severe groups, and then there's the moderate groups. In the Hyperion study, for example, the in-hospital cardiac arrest study, they found that it improved 
morbidity, but mortality wasn't changed. So it was almost like if you were so severely injured, right? The therapeutic hypothermia wasn't going to do anything for you, but it did shift people to a lower stability score um, if, if you weren't in the severely brain injured part. And I think I think there's something to that is us identifying, excluding the people who are so mildly injured that they're going to do great. You just have to not support them and not hurt them, right? And that's probably a lot of patients in the TTM2 trial. And there's the most severely injured group that, you know, probably isn't, is, is unfortunately, if it's had too much of an anoxic burden. And how do we identify these people in the middle here who've had some amount of brain injury um, where we can intervene and, and, and try to make, give them a better outcome? That's the future, I believe. Well said. Okay, so we're running out of time. Dr. Uh, Linhart, any final words? Well, it might be interesting to stratify these patient populations into mild, moderate, and severe brain injury and do such a study such as ICECAT in, in a stratified way. The downside to that would be you would need way more patients than you, <laughs> you already trying to enroll, I guess, yeah. and it would make it very, very expensive. But um, I agree with you, Dr. Dietrich, that uh, the Bayesian approach is, is a great approach. It's probably the future for these big clinical trials because it may give us good answers for clinicians faster and with fewer patients. Well said. Dr. Tusi, any final words? We can't talk about severity and not mention, um, you know, Dr. Clifton Calloway's work. He published on this, you know, trying to get a illness severity score basically in patients with cardiac arrest, and um, you know, looking at the patients that would benefit with TTM. And he 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 is seeing that, so that has been published in, in, in JAMA by him. Very good. Okay, well, um, I'd like to really thank you both, Dr. Tusi and Dr. Linhart, for uh, participating in the discussion, and thank you for so much for what you're doing to improve uh, outcomes in our, in our patients. Really greatly appreciate it. And it's always great to, to uh, be able to, to do research that you, you, know, you think one day is going to make a difference in patient lives. So congratulations on all you're doing. We'd also like to acknowledge Marianne Liebert Publishers and Zoll Medical for providing an educational grant that supported this podcast today. So again, uh, my name is Dalton Dietrich, and I look forward to the next podcast. And until then... Stay safe and cool, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.